As people are making their way in, let's begin our time together with prayer. Our Lord, we are grateful for the beauty of your creation, for the gift of space to reflect on you and on who you are and on your call in our lives. Father, we praise you for this opportunity to reconnect with friends, to make new friends, to learn uh, a bit about your truth, not just intellectually, but Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would move the things that we are thinking and realizing from our heads into our hearts so that they might inform our ministries, um, change us as human beings, so that we might, uh, in all that we do, bring glory to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is just an aside to begin with. Um, it seems to me like there is today a kind of war on competence. It's like competence is not cool anymore. And listening to Haley talk earlier today, it was just so invigorating to me just because she knows what she's talking about. And I think that is such a gift to us. I mean, the, you think about the Herculean efforts that she had to go through to acquire that knowledge that she is sharing with us. It's just a breath of fresh air. Pastors, as you know, do not work in the abstract. We minister to actual human beings. But our understanding of those people is inevitably conditioned by our understanding of human nature. Who we think people are affects and influences how we minister to them. Now, in practice, our ideas about what it means to be human, I think, are often inconsistent or unreflective or maybe just downright confused. But one way or another, those ideas influence how we go about being pastors. It seems to me that any reasonable person would agree with that. It's hard for me to imagine how it could be otherwise. Which means that we find ourselves continually confronted with a fundamental question. Not just who are these particular people that I'm ministering to, but who are people in general? And on the surface, at least, it appears like this question has no answer. No two human beings are exactly alike. Each of us is distinguished by our differences. Those collective differences, taken all together, are limitless. And it is impossible to account for all of those differences. So the question that we're asking, what unites us as human beings, what makes all of us human despite our differences, runs the risk of generating answers. Every answer that we might give to that question risks coming up with answers that are too narrow to include everyone. And as you know, when we come up with answers that are too narrow to include everyone about what it means to be human, that 
error has a long and calamitous history. Not only that, but our rapidly expanding knowledge of human existence resists summary. It's hard to distill from psychology to economics, neuroscience, literature, philosophy, the proliferation of new and important and exciting information is staggering. I don't know about you, but to exist today feels like existing in a kind of tsunami of data and you're barely even able to keep your head above water. You can't. There is always more for us to learn. And given our numerous limitations, not to mention our biases, developing a broadly compelling theory of what it means to be human seems impossible. So it seems like we're confronted with a dilemma. Either we conclude that a doctrine of human nature can't be constructed, it's impossible to do, or we arbitrarily prioritize a particular perspective, even when that perspective fails to account for alternative views. I mean, you don't need me to give you examples of this. You know someone, and they're really into neuroscience. And every explanation for every human behavior reduces to brain waves or something like that. You know another person, and they've been reading a bunch of psychology. And every answer to every question has to do with your relationship with your mother or your father or whatever. I mean, we have these disciplinary approaches that are extremely illuminating. But it seems like we can't synthesize all of these insights on the one hand, or we arbitrarily decide that one disciplinary perspective is sort of the authority or king, and we can't account for all the other, or many of the other essential and important insights. So this seems like a massive problem. And it's here, I think, that Bart has something really crucial to teach us. Bart. Um, like every good humanist, welcomes the truthful contributions that he and all of us learn from the various disciplines about what it means to be a human being. But his thesis about what it means to be a human being, um, it, on, or his position about what it means to be a human being, his way of thinking about humanity in general, unfolds from a very simple basic thesis. And the thesis is this. Jesus Christ is, quote, the one Archimedean point given to us beyond humanity, beyond humanity, and therefore the one possibility of discovering what it means to be truly human. I'll read that again. Jesus Christ is the one Archimedean point given to us beyond humanity and therefore the one possibility of discovering what it means to be truly human. In other words, Jesus Christ himself is the key that unlocks the mystery of human nature. As I've been saying leading up to this, 
It is not that Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks the mystery of human nature to the exclusion of anything else we learn from other disciplines. Bart welcomes, and so should we, all of the true insights that we learn, wherever they come from. His point just simply is that Jesus himself is the true human being. It's in him that we discover not only who God is, but also who we are. Um, he has this wonderful formulation where he says, as God reveals himself to us in Christ, he also reveals us to ourselves. And that fact does not compete with what we learn anywhere else. What it does is it contextualizes knowledge from other sources within the fundamental relationship that I was trying to describe last night, the relationship in which God and Christ brings us together with him and sets that relationship at peace. Whatever else turns out to be true about us, the relationship secured between God and humanity in Christ is, Bart is saying, the fundamental presupposition of what it means to be human. That is our essential truth. Human nature cannot be understood apart from this relationship. And as Bart sees it, that is the distinctly Christian way of thinking about what it means to be human. I'll say that again. According to Bart, the distinctly Christian way of thinking about what it means to be human is to learn about human nature from Jesus himself, who is the true, perfect human being. Let me pause there. Any questions about that? Anything unclear about that or things you want to follow up with? No? Yeah. Are you asking me, um, like, how do I know that's true? Um, I come from Germany most recently, so I'm kind of, I'm just asking for a clarification. Yeah, I, I'm not certain I understand the question, but let me take a stab at it. Um, what I would say is that Jesus Christ uh, exists before the foundation of the world. And what I take that to mean is it's an extraordinary claim when you consider it. Have you ever thought about that? How can a human being exist before there's a world? There's no world in which to be human, it would seem, and yet Jesus Christ exists before the foundation of the world. It's extraordinary. I take this to mean something along the lines of God's eternal will in creating human beings and redeeming them is to exist in fellowship with him. I'm going to talk about this a little bit. But the way that we know what it means to exist in fellowship with him, to be truly human, is to learn what it means by examining Jesus. 
And I only believe that just because that's what Christians think or ought to. Yeah. Um, what is Bart's understanding of Archimedean? Okay. Oh. Karl Bart. Come on. Check, 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 check. I can I can repeat the question. What is it? What is an Archimedean point? Um, so basically, it's a kind of lever. So Bart says that when God lives a human life, that's the one place that we can look to determine what it means to be truly human. I mean, if you pause and consider it, someone were to you're, you're you know a child that you know asks you, "What are people?" Um, the obvious thing to do is to start looking at people and trying to figure that out. Bart says, if you try that, you're never going to get there. The only way to know what people are is to look at God and how he exists as a human being. So that's what he means by an Archimedean point. There's only ever been one incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. All, all good theology is practical. Jesus was never a parent. Jesus was never married. Jesus never experienced old age. So to, to talk about him as um, the ultimate revelation of humanity without having had so many experiences that many humans have is interesting from a practical point of view. How yeah, would you yeah, respond yeah. to that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, obviously, I mean, so the feminists actually raise this question. It's a great one. How can a, how can a male savior save women, right? I'll talk about this in a second, but what Jesus' life expresses is um, one long act of faith and obedience. And I, I think it's uh, when our lives, and I'm, this is sort of where I'm headed, but when our lives mirror his life, that is to say, when they correspond to his life of faith and obedience, then that's how we become the human beings in a way that, that we were called to be in a way that's like him. So you need something broader than particular experiences in order to encompass all of human existence. It's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I'm going to think about nature. I'm going to make a distinction between um, human... Uh, it, the terms don't really matter. But human essence as it exists in Jesus. And this is what I was talking about last night. We are who we are. We are defined by this relationship that he establishes for us in reconciliation. That's a fact. And that relationship is one of peace, love, faithfulness, obedience. Our own particular lives, however, the sum total of our decisions, what we decide to do when we wake up in the morning, I'm going to call that our human nature. And, other, and I know I realize that I'm shifting the terms a little bit, but this is in part because the terminology that Bart uses is different. There is a difference between human essence as it exists in Christ and human existence as we actualize it. Now, if you think about it like that, 
you would never want to say that humanity in Christ is fallen in the sense of sinful. You would want to say that our lives, because we are sinners, contradict his life, and to that extent, our natures are fallen. I realize it's somewhat technical way of putting it. Let me just try to use different language. Jesus is who, we is who he is, and we are who we are because of who he is. That's who we really are. That's our essence, or if you want to call it nature, whatever. There's then the question of how we respond and live, and that, as we all know, um, you know, to our shame, is often a life characterized by sin. So to that extent, our nature is fallen. But it's not as if, like, do you ever um, go see a movie with your friend and it was like super dark and um, cynical and everything and you get out and you're like, whoa, what'd you think of it? And your friend's like, man, I'll tell you, that shows what it's really like to be human. That's what, that shows what true humanity is. Bart is saying the exact opposite of that. He's, he's saying that's what true humanity is not even though we embrace that pattern of life. One more question, then we should move on. Yeah. Uh, may just take a half a step back, but if I'm understanding you right, maybe that, that missing image is in, in Genesis 1, where it talks about being created in God's image. Seminary, they debate all over what that means. But you're saying we discover what it means to be created in the image of God as we look to Jesus. That's what I'm saying. And he's not even a plant, because I'm now going to talk about the image of God a little bit. <laughs> Thank you for that question. That's a good question. The church has always struggled, I think, to grasp the point uh, that Karl Barth is making. For all its strengths, the long history of Christian reflection on human nature is marked by a speculative tendency to look away from Jesus. The concept of the image of God has dominated Christian thinking about what it means to be human. But the numerous interpretations given to that phrase have rarely been governed by the New Testament's identification of Jesus Christ himself as the image of God. And they almost always go beyond anything suggested in the Old Testament passages that use that phrase, image of God. Standard operating procedure for Christian theology through the centuries has been to conceive of the image of God as a particular faculty or attribute or set of attributes intrinsic to each individual human being. That's how we've always done it. Whether that attribute is thought to be reason or self-transcendence or, um, you know, if you're super artsy, maybe you think it's creativity or dominion or whatever, the point just is that the image of God is thought to be an attribute that belongs to each and every person individually just because they are human beings. And in that sense, the image of God is our possession. It is a structural feature of our humanity. And Bart doesn't think of it that way. For Bart, the image of God is not an intrinsic property that belongs to each and every human being. 
Jesus is the image of God. And we become images of the image of God to the extent that our lives mirror his life, to the extent that our lives correspond to his life of faith and obedience. As I argued last night, the radiant truth at the center of the gospel and the essential fact of human nature is that Jesus Christ has reconciled all things to God. We are who we are because Jesus is who he is. And that glorious fact not only illuminates us, it also claims us and calls us to grateful response. It's important to say that Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the good news, and he is also the law, the one who calls us to respond to this gospel in faith and obedience. Every single moment of our lives, without exception, God is calling us to live at peace with him, with our neighbors, and with ourselves in a way that coheres with the peace that he has established for us in Christ. That's the whole point of our lives. That's why God created us. That was his intention from the beginning. According to Bart, quote, the truth of our existence is simply this, that Jesus Christ has died and risen again for us. It is this and this alone which is to be claimed to us as our truth. After last night's talk, I um, forget who it was, but someone raised an important question. If what you said is true, he said, if reconciliation is real even apart from our response, then why does our response matter? Why is faith significant? If we're already reconciled to God, then why does Paul call us to be reconciled to God? Furthermore, if reconciliation is a perfect reality, then how are we supposed to understand the transition that occurs when someone's eyes are opened to the truth of reconciliation and they begin to acknowledge it in our own life. What's the best way to understand that process? I think that's, uh, that series of questions is really important and really good. So I want to try to answer them. The first thing to say is that since reconciliation is restored relationship with God, that's what it means to be reconciled, and since faith and obedience are how one lives in right relationship with God, then the idea that reconciliation does not require our response is absurd. Of course it requires our response. That's the whole point. God's grace necessarily calls forth gratitude. God created us and reconciled us precisely for life in fellowship with him and one another. And here's the crucial thing to see. Rather than being an abstract fact that does not include us, or one that somehow makes our response irrelevant, 
Reconciliation is a, I'll use an Aristotelian word, a teleological reality. Or to use an intelligible word, it's a reality that has a goal. Reconciliation, this particular relationship that God established with us in Christ, has a goal. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and now our lives are hidden with Christ in God. But why? Here's the answer. So that we will receive and enact our lives in faith. That's why. So that we'll do something. Faith is how we become in ourselves who we already are in Christ. When we perceive that Christ is who the gospel declares him to be, and when we respond to him in simple obedience, that's Bonhoeffer's marvelous phrase, simple obedience, when that happens, our lives conform to his life and we exist in analogy to Jesus Christ. For all of our dissimilarities to Jesus, our lives also become similar to his life. In the words of 1 John 3, 2, we become like him. This, uh, let me pause, just make an editorial comment. The Reformed tradition has never really loved the idea of the imitation of Christ. Um, that's, that's too bad. We need to recover and learn from our pietistic friends that we are called to imitate Jesus in the sense that we are called to lives that conform to his life of faith and obedience. And what I'm saying is that this summons to discipleship is a summons to live with the grain of our identity in Christ rather than living against the grain of who we are in Christ. And in those moments, and I want to be very clear, I think this is episodic. This is not stable for any of us. In those moments where we do live in faith and obedience, we become images of the image of God. Our existence, the shape of our individual lives, matches our essence in Jesus. Now, I, I want to be clear about this, particularly for my um, students. Millennials, they hate conformity. They don't like conformity. This is not a call to social conformity. It's a call to obedience. And since Jesus Christ's command is personal rather than generic, the shape of the command of discipleship will differ, I think, from person to person. Jesus' call to you to become who you are is not identical to his call to me to become who I am. We can assume that they share a common unity since Jesus is the one who calls both of us and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But Jesus Christ's call to each one of us is irreducibly personal. It comes, Bart writes, to each individual in a highly particular way in one's own particular time and situation. Of course we discern 
and respond to Christ's voice in community with other people. We support, we encourage, we perhaps even occasionally rebuke one another, and we certainly rely on one another to discern his voice. But in the final analysis, discipleship, the process whereby you become who you actually are, is not something that someone else can do for you. You have to do it. Bonhoeffer expresses this point in his uh, typically penetrating way. He's drawing on Kierkegaard, and this is what he writes. Quote, Jesus' call to discipleship makes the disciple into a single individual. That phrase, single individual, is Kierkegaard's phrase. Whether disciples want to or not, they have to make a decision. Each person has to decide alone. I read Bart. I also read Kierkegaard. I read Kierkegaard even more. And I have to offer a dissenting voice. Everyone, all my theologian friends are very worried about what our consumeristic, individualistic culture is doing to us. And all my pastor friends wish that people needed the church more than they do. And I get that. I agree with both. But I also want to say that those truths can't stand in for the fact that no one can obey for you. You have to do it yourself. People can help you, but in the final analysis, Jesus Christ calls you, and you have to respond. Or reject it. Or reject it. And since we receive ourselves as we respond to Christ in faith, all of us have what Bart says is, quote, the same essential task. The task of each one of our lives is identical, namely, to become who we are in Christ. And I want you to notice something. Those of you who are thinking through this, thinking a few steps ahead, you're already here, but I want to just point it out. This implies that human beings are not simply themselves in a straightforward way. You are not always really yourself, nor do you become yourself all at once. At best, you are are on your way toward becoming who you actually are. At most, your existence is being conformed to your essence in Christ. That's why Kierkegaard refused to call himself a Christian. He read the New Testament. He reads the kind of life that Jesus says his followers will experience. He compares that with Danish Christendom and says, well, y'all aren't. (laughs) But then they're like, oh, well, you're so high and mighty. And he says, no, I'm not going to call myself a Christian either. And, And this is what he means. He's saying, at best, we're on the way toward becoming Christian, becoming ourselves. And of course, the reality of reconciliation, I was talking about this with someone uh, earlier, the reality of reconciliation provides the freedom and joy necessary to proceed along that path. I want to say that again. The, The challenge 
to become who you are is a life that requires a stable platform. And that stable platform is reconciliation, this relationship that Jesus accomplishes for us. You need that. It's analogous to what um, Calvin said when he said that the doctrine of Christian freedom is an appendage to the doctrine of justification. See what I mean by that? You need to know that you're right with God so that you can venture out and live this life that is super difficult to live. It's kind of like a point guard in basketball. You know, the point guard is the one who sort of dribbles the ball up the court and tries to get the offense to work. Now, if a point guard is terrified that every time she makes an entry pass, her coach is going to take her out of the game, she can't play. She seizes up. If a point guard knows that a coach has confidence in this player, this gives the player confidence to take risks and to actually play and to be good. It's something like that with the doctrine of justification and reconciliation. We need a stable platform so that we can actually live the kinds of lives that God calls us to live. So that's essential to say. But the Christian life is itself a process of perpetual striving to live as the people that we really are in Christ. Um, I'm grateful for a lot of uh, the work that's being done um, these days about uh, virtues and habits. And I'm sure many of you are aware of Jamie Smith's work on liturgies, and I think it's very valuable, um, very helpful in many ways. Where it seems not to match up with the New Testament, although it does match up with Aristotle, is that following Jesus does not get easier. At least I don't think it does. Following Jesus is and always remains a struggle. Obedience never becomes automatic. If the Christian life were merely a matter of acquiring the right information or a process of socialization into an established culture or set of behaviors, then maybe perhaps being a Christian could become second nature to someone. But if you read the New Testament, you know that Jesus Christ's call is unpredictable. You can't know it before he issues it. In the New Testament, Jesus is continually shocking and surprising and scandalizing people. The same Jesus with whom we're in relationship. People are in perpetual confrontation with this strange man which suggests to me that we should expect the Christian life to be characterized more by disruptive and explosive encounters than by stable and unsurprising configurations of life. It's more like what it was like for you to try to figure out how to be a boyfriend or a girlfriend to your first boyfriend or girlfriend than it is for you to be retired. What time is it? We got a, a few minutes. All right. 
To be clear, and I, I just said this, but I want to say it again, our identity in Christ is stable and unchanging. But the existential shape of our life with Jesus is impossible to predict. Thus, if our true humanity is hidden with Christ in God, and if we embrace that life in faith and obedience, then the most fitting way to conceptualize Christian existence is to think of it as eccentric existence. That's a, a lovely formulation that Bart gives us in the fourth volume of the Church Dogmatics. Bart learned to think of human existence this way from Luther and especially from Paul. His point is very simple, but it's very different than um, we often think of what it means to live a human life. What Bart is saying is that to live in faith is to live outside yourself in union with Christ. Paul's great exclamation, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, implies that we are never more fully human, never more fully ourselves, never more free than when our lives become transparent to the life of Christ in us. That's how the Spirit liberates us to become who we are. Not, and this is very important to notice, not by granting us greater inner resources. Not by increasing our strength. Not by turning us into the kind of people who automatically know and do the good just because we're that habituated into it. But by granting us faith to entrust ourselves to Christ whose power is made perfect in our weakness. Kierkegaard expresses this in a formulation that I, I think cannot be improved upon. According to Kierkegaard, and he's talking about Jesus here, the helper is the help. Or think of Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength. As anyone who has ever seriously tried to do it knows, becoming a Christian is a fight. It usually feels less like liberation than like being torn apart. And in the midst of this battle, we face, I think, the constant temptation to check out. Not, I think, to just stop intellectually agreeing that God exists, but to just check out of this kind of life to settle into habitual patterns of life that insulate us from the threat of God's call on our lives. And it really is a threat. Why do we do this? Obviously, we don't want to go where Christ leads us um, because we don't like to go into places that will get us killed. But it's also because relying on the grace of God requires extraordinary effort. That, it, at least to Reformed years, that may sound paradoxical to you. It shouldn't. God's grace is not opposed to working. God's grace is opposed to earning and to self-reliance. Kierkegaard expresses this in an extraordinary journal entry that I think um, is one of the best descriptions of the Christian life I've ever read. 
If I were to define Christian perfection, he writes, I should not say that it is a perfection of striving, but specifically that it is the deep recognition of the imperfection of one's striving. And precisely because of this, a deeper and deeper consciousness of the need for grace. Not grace for this or that, but the infinite need infinitely for grace. Bart and Kierkegaard describe what life is like when we refuse to rely on grace. And I'll, I'll just end with this. Uh, in a series of what I take to be extraordinary metaphors, Barton Kierkegaard describes sin as, quote, falling out with oneself. Falling out with oneself. Now, it's interesting. If I were to say to you, what is sin? That's probably not the answer that you're going to give. Or being at odds with oneself. Or, Kierkegaard, becoming a traitor to oneself. Or, profoundly, I think, becoming untruth. In other words, sin is existence not only against God and neighbor, but also against oneself. As Bonhoeffer put it, falling away from Christ is at the same time falling away from one's own true nature. Nevertheless, and this is essential to remember, sin does not have the power to remake human nature. God really has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, and nothing we do has the power to invalidate that. It's true whether we want it to be true or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether our lives attest its truth or not. As Philip K. Dick once wrote, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. From a Christian point of view, to say that our sin is stronger than God's grace makes about as much sense as to say that we can swim while sleeping on our couches, which is to say it makes no sense at all. If you're like, what's he talking about? It doesn't make any sense to say that. And it's exactly the same, I think, with the claim that our sin is more powerful than God's love. It's just not. Okay, I'll stop there. We have nine minutes left, so what do you want to talk about? Yeah. Thank you so much. Might it be helpful to have a Trinitarian perspective on this process by saying that the spirit, who St. Basil says, is the perfecting cause mm -hmm. is the same spirit who Jesus Christ in his baptism came down in its fullness and allowed him to do and be everything and anything he did and to become this perfected human being. Is it not that same perfecting cause 
who in its fullness will allow us over time to not do it ourselves, but will perfect us over time to be and become that perfect image. I don't have anything to add to that. It's, I could not have said it any better than you just said it. I mean, all I want to say is just yes. To, to, to live in obedience to Christ is to live um, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, you know, in talking about Christ being the point at which we see and maybe can experience um, who we are as the image of God, to what degree then would you say that the Israelites were, um, you know, hampered or crippled in their ability to appropriate what was their created identity as the image of God, you know, just having the Old Testament? Yeah, well... Um, so, of course, I, I brought this back all the way to eternity earlier, and I said that God creates us to live in covenant fellowship with him. Now, of course, he, he elects Israel to live in fellowship with him. He reveals himself to them, and he gives them the law. That's quite a lot. Um, but just because I'm a Christian, I, I think that the law is fulfilled in Christ, and we see even more clearly who that God is and how he wants us to exist in relationship with him. You probably knew this one was coming. Um, talk about living with the grain as opposed to against the grain um, and that uh, the image of Christ puts us with the grain. How do you use this in counseling a young person who says, I'm gay, that's just how I am, that's my grain? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a counselor. I talk to a lot of college students, many of them about this particular question. Um, the first thing that I would say, I mean, I, I, didn't, I don't want to recount a counseling relationship because one only can speak into a relationship if you are the kind of person that they trust, etc. So there's a whole lot to say. But in response to that particular claim, I would say none of us can read off our own natures who we actually are. That's the whole point of this talk. In other words, we have to learn from Christ who we are. Yeah, that actually... So I'm a ministering in Tahoe where self-actualization and finding your true self and ex yeah. you know, all that stuff is there. And I could see how somebody could say, oh, being a Christian is all about finding my true self. Yeah. How do we pin it back to Jesus? Because, again, I've talked to people who, you know, they follow Jesus, but it's not really Jesus. It's mm -hmm. themselves projected up as divine, yeah. and then they call yeah. that Jesus. Yeah, I, I rather think that Christians ought to, I mean, capitalize is a crass word, but I think we ought to, I guess I'll just use it, capitalize on this desire. It is, I mean, I forget the author of the book, he's, the title of the book is Reality Hunger. I mean, when we live in a, a world that's digital like the one we live in, that's awash in propaganda and lies, when 
when you're a young person, if you want to exist in a rational way, you have to assume that more or less everybody is lying to you. Because they are. And many of the people that I come into contact with Whitworth want to do with their lives exactly like you've just said. They want to actualize their lives. They want to really be who they are. And I don't think that we should take a kind of apologetic approach to say, oh, that's not that you're suggesting we should do this, but oh, that's not um, healthy. What we really need is to be Christians. I think we need to somehow, in the context of a relationship, help people see that we become ourselves. We actualize who we really are in relationship with Jesus. So the, the only tweak needs to happen is people need to see that they don't know on their own how to become themselves. They need to be taught that. And my experience, at least, is that many of the people who are most vociferous about saying, I want to actualize my life, be my, the best version of myself, know full well they don't know how to do it on their own. So I think it's an opportunity to share the gospel in a way that actually makes contact with life. Yeah. Y'all getting hungry? Good. Thank you for listening. Can I ask one more? Yeah. Please. Maybe this is for everybody else. So uh, the call of Jesus is a threat to us. And my church, full of older people, mostly grandma types, perhaps are totally comfortable with the idea of Jesus' call in their lives as a threat to them. But for the rest of my friends here, whose churches may be more interested in comfort and keeping things stable the way they've always been, what would you say to us about how to communicate that call that's a threat in a way that's attractive or winsome that draws people to this Lord who calls and threatens? Let me say this. I can say more or less whatever I want at Whitworth, and I'm going to still be employed if people hate it. I am not a pastor in the way that y'all are. So I appreciate the fact that you need people in your churches. <laughs> I totally get that. I also think that if you read the New Testament and help other people read the New Testament, um, it will at least hopefully become clear to people that to live with Jesus costs you a whole lot. And that message is not that actual message when it's articulated won't track with everyone. And people will leave. But as, I mean, I'm not going to pontificate up here about this, but uh, in case you haven't heard, the church in America is in trouble. Yeah? I know, it's news, but it's true. And part of the reason we think that we're in trouble is because we're bleeding numbers. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Um, maybe it gives us the opportunity, and I, again, I want to be very clear about this. I'm not saying this in a blasé way. But maybe it gives us the opportunity to rediscover what it really means to be Christian. And to do that, maybe our communities need to get a little smaller. Thanks, guys. See you at lunch.